Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Catton. like to call to order the meeting of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigation, our first hearing of this session. I want to recognize... That's Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. And this hearing just happened May 17th, 2023. They were investigating the dangers of artificial intelligence. But not the dangers that you've been hearing on the news recently. This was not about existential risk. It was about Medicare. As of 2023, more than 30 million Americans were enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans, representing more than half of Medicare-eligible Americans. Medicare Advantage is one of the programs that comprise Medicare. Medicare Advantage is a U.S. government-funded health insurance plan that's actually provided by a private insurer. The government pays them, and they cover you. The reason we're here today is that all too often the big insurance companies that run Medicare Advantage plans have been failing seniors when they need treatment and care. And tragically, we've heard from many families who face denials in the middle of major medical crises forcing them and their loved ones to fight, even as they are fighting for their lives. I think there's something uniquely infuriating about these private companies denying government-funded health care. But what's even more infuriating is the high-tech way that they've been doing it. Companies are using algorithms that have been programmed to predict how much care a patient needs without ever meeting a patient or their doctor. All too often, black box AI and algorithms have become a blanket mechanism for denial. And the insurance companies insist that those AI mechanisms are proprietary. One of those companies is called NavaHealth. I believe in NavaHealth. I believe in NavaHealth. I believe in NavaHealth. I believe in NavaHealth Nava because we're changing the way healthcare is delivered to a population that really needs us. The way I would describe it is NavaHealth is a care management company. So its job is utilization management. It's trying to help Medicare Advantage insurers find ways to save money on the care of their patients and making recommendations and putting systems in place to help them do that. Casey Ross has been covering NavaHealth at the health-focused website StatNews. Ross is their national technology reporter. 
So we began reporting on this when we started to see a number of complaints bubble up about the use of NavaHealth's algorithm, particularly as it related to post-acute care. That just means what happens after the hospital. Sometimes you need a little extra help to get yourself back on your feet or to transition to a new way of life. That's post-acute care. And NavaHealth had developed an algorithm that predicted how long you as a patient would likely need to stay in this post-acute setting in like a skilled nursing facility or a rehabilitation hospital. That algorithm took a look at Gary Bent. Gary was a physicist at the University of Connecticut for 23 years. After he retired, he became a local climate activist. But unfortunately, he was struck by cancer. First, it was Hodgkin's lymphoma. Then it was a metastatic melanoma. His wife, Gloria Bent, testified about Gary's treatment at that Senate hearing from May 2023. You ask in your invitation if seniors enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans face barriers accessing necessary care and treatment. My answer, based on our experience of getting and maintaining rehabilitation and skilled nursing care for my husband, is yes. Yes, they do. Gary's cancers were in remission. The initial treatment that he received went pretty well. He had about a year of clean health, up until last Memorial Day. That's when Gary became confused. He couldn't remember how to tie his own shoes. My husband asked to be taken to the emergency room. In the emergency room, we learned that there was a lesion in his brain and it was bleeding. The lesion and a hematoma were removed surgically on June 1st and pathology confirmed what we all feared. It was melanoma. Gary came out of surgery with significant cognitive and mobility deficits. He had upper body weakness. He couldn't walk. He had left neglect. That means that his brain no longer registered that he had a left side to his body. He was heartbreakingly confused and disoriented. His neurosurgeon wanted him transferred to an acute rehabilitation and skilled nursing hospital for intense physical, occupational, and speech therapy. Acute rehabilitation services were denied. Gary's insurance provider was United Healthcare, but United was working with Nava Health. And according to Gloria's testimony, it was Nava Health that made the determination. They determined that Gary couldn't withstand acute rehab, even though Gary's doctors thought that he could. Nava Health instead approved that Gary be sent to a skilled nursing facility, a place called Seabury. Seabury would offer him a lower level of care than his doctors recommended, but still, it was something. But before the staff of the facility could even evaluate my husband or develop a plan of care, I was contacted by someone who identified 
themselves as my Navi Health Care Coordinator and told that my husband would be discharged on July 4th. My job, she told me, was to find the safest possible location for him to be brought home to on that discharge date. And she strongly suggested that we consider he would be permanently wheelchair bound and uh, therefore highly recommended a skilled nursing facility self-pay. And if I lived in a home that was not handicapped accessible, which ours wasn't, then I needed to move. And all of this conversation is sort of triggered by the behind the scenes use of this algorithm. And he needed weeks and weeks of rehabilitative therapy. But in this case, that recommendation isn't heated. Uh, It's instead sort of the decision, you know, of the insurer based on the algorithm to say, well, your care isn't, doesn't meet the coverage criteria. So we're not going to continue to pay for it. What Casey just described was too much for Gloria to handle. Let me read a bit now from her written testimony. I was still processing that my spouse, holding a doctorate in physics, he could no longer tell time. He didn't know the date. He couldn't remember that we had visited him each day, and he felt abandoned. She goes on to write, I had neither the emotional nor the financial wherewithal to pick myself up dust myself off, and in two weeks, create a new home for us. So what does Gloria do? She tells the nursing facility, I want to keep Gary here. They say, all right, but get ready for a fight, because the insurance company is going to try to deny the coverage. And that is exactly what happens. Gloria gets a notice of non-payment. But she appeals to a federal program that reviews Medicare disputes. And she wins. Gary gets to stay. While he's there, he gets a lot of help from the facility. Remember, Gary's whole left side can't move. So getting to and fro from bed to wheelchair to toilet, this all takes a lot of effort. And it takes the help of two nurses. While he's there, Gary and Gloria get another notice from the insurance company. And so they wage another appeal. And again, they win. The nurses continue to work hard to rehab Gary. They build his strength by walking him down the hallway. Gary uses a walker and a nurse follows closely behind with a wheelchair. He takes a few steps, and when he gets too tired and needs to rest, he just sits back down. Over the few weeks that he's there, he takes more and more and more steps. Things are looking good. The nurses make a plan for his continued progress. But another notice from the insurance company and another appeal. We won two of the appeals. We lost the third. My husband was discharged on August 7th. He came home by ambulance and was accompanied by an EMT who told us he seemed to have a low-grade fever and had complained about headaches and neck pain 
with every bump in the road. He was disconnected, disoriented. He was experiencing great difficulty in making the transfers from chair to walker to bed that he had mastered at Seabury. The next morning, we had to call emergency services because my husband did not know who he was, where he was, or who we were. Gary had bacterial meningitis. He was only out 11 hours before he had to be sent to the hospital. And in the hospital, he gets COVID. Gloria brings him back home and cares for him there, where he continues to get physical and occupational therapy for the next few months. But it's not enough. Reading again from Gloria's written testimony. Physical therapy was terminated because he was no longer making progress. He seemed to lose hope when the therapist stopped coming. In mid-January, with the discovery of nodules in both lungs, his primary care physician told him that it was time to move into home hospice care. He died at home on March 3rd, 2023. The reappearance of melanoma in 2022 pulled a rug out from under my husband and my family. Then came the added trauma, which piled on steadily, of having to fight to keep him receiving the care he needed. This should not be happening to families and patients. It's cruel. Our family continues to struggle with the question that I hear you asking today. Why are people who are looking at patients only on paper or through the lens of an algorithm making decisions that deny the services judged necessary by healthcare providers who know their patients and are interacting with them personally and in some cases have been working with them for months or even years? Thank you for your time. On this episode of Darts and Letters, we will try to answer Gloria Bent's question. How is artificial intelligence being used in medicine? Why is it being used that way? And who is responsible for regulating it? We will cover the political, medical, technological, and the philosophical problems posed by these emerging medical technologies after the break. Hello, dear New Books Network listener. As you see, we are syndicated on your network. But if you like what you hear, consider subscribing to our main feed. Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like this episode, you will surely like others. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca, and you can subscribe there so you never miss an episode. And back to Casey Ross. Ross has been covering AI and medicine at Stat News for several years now, so I thought he would be the absolute perfect person to help us demystify these technologies and basically just explain the basics. You know, if something were to happen to me today and I had to go to the 
to the emergency room or the hospital? How might I, as a patient, intersect with various um, AI technologies? Yeah, I mean, it's a potential it would be used in a lot of different areas. I mean, it depends on the health system and it depends on how sophisticated they are with sort of the use of AI tools. But for example, if there were some imaging done on you, if you had some kind of a suspected fracture or other musculoskeletal issue, or if you had symptoms of pneumonia, they might run a chest CT scan. And usually AI would be in some way baked into that technology, maybe to triage you to determine the severity of your illnesses, to predict what kind of illnesses or problems might you have. There might be also sort of a general intake tool that they would use to sort of gauge your risk of mortality within seven days, whether you might be a candidate to be sent to the intensive care unit, how long you might stay in the hospital, uh, what kinds of services you might be there. So it's used very much you know, there are clinical uses and operational uses, but it's baked in in a way that that helps to guide the decisions that are made about you throughout the course of your stay. I know because we talked earlier offline that you had focused at one point more specifically on the kind of business of healthcare. And, you know, you open up the business press, uh, you open up any newspaper and AI, generative AI is sort of the hot topic um, of investment and of, of, of chatter. When did AI in medicine become sort of trendy and become the kind of gold rush that it is now? I think it really started to ramp up between roughly 2011 and 2014. That's when we started to see kind of a new era of machine learning systems come into use and exploration. And we saw a lot of research published. There was a big demonstration that IBM put on where its Watson artificial intelligence tool beat Jeopardy. Even a broken one of these on your wall is right twice a day. Watson. What is clock? Clock is correct. And with that, you move up to 23,000. Now we come to Watson. We're looking for Bram Stoker. And we find who is Bram Stoker and the wager. Hello, 17,973, 41,413, and a two-day total of 77,000. So where, what was it doing, I mean, outside of Jeopardy, and, and how did it fare? Yeah, so immediately upon the Jeopardy demonstration, a, a lot of healthcare businesses were really excited about the possibility of leveraging the technology. And one of the domains where it was being leveraged was in in cancer care, in oncology. They created a project called Watson for Oncology. And that was sort of like the big moonshot, like Ginny Rometty, who was the CEO of IBM at the time, went on Charlie Rose and CBS and was talking about this is IBM's big moonshot. And this is the place where we're going to make the biggest difference for people in the lives of, of the people that use our technology. It's going to be within cancer care and within healthcare. We have participated in some of the most glorious moments of history, whether it might've been the first systems that ever did census or landing a man on the moon. I'm telling you, our moonshot will be the impact we will have on healthcare. It has already started. We will change and do our part to change the face of healthcare. I am absolutely positive about it. And, and that to me, while we do many other things, that will be one of the most important. Is this called what? And so they created this product that was basically meant to be a treatment advisor. What Watson can do, looks all your medical records. He has been fed and taught by the best doctors in the world and 
comes up with what are the probable diagnosis, percent confidence, why, rationale, diagnosis, why, odds, conflicts. It would take in all this data about a patient and then it would develop sort of a bespoke treatment regimen or suggest the steps that a clinician should take in caring for you. That was, that was the big project at the time. Yeah, I remember um, seeing some videos you folks put together where, you know, it would suggest of these possible options, we recommend these, these are maybes, you know, consider them, and these are definitely, you know, don't do them. How did the computer itself kind of come up with those weighted recommendations? Yeah, Watson for Oncology was by and large trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And so it was trained with data Uh, that physicians would feed into it about the cases that they were seeing within that hospital and health system. So what it's doing is it's calculating probabilities, essentially, based on the data that are fed into it of what the most beneficial series of next steps would be for a given patient. Then there would be recommendations, and those recommendations would be in sort of like coded yellow for these might work. They'd be coded in red for these probably won't work, or they'd be coded in green for these are the things that are most likely to work and be beneficial for this patient. And what were the results? How robust was this uh, Watson Oncology? It didn't do very well, and it didn't get much uptake within the United States, especially as a result, because what was happening was that the software was really, by and large, telling clinicians things they already knew or um, things that really, you know, didn't comport with the options that they had a- available to them, or they weren't necessarily relevant, they thought, to the patient in front of them. So when clinicians would use it after sort of reading about it and reading all the hype, they were sort of like, eh, you know, this doesn't help me that much. It's really not what it's cracked up to be. And as a result, very quickly, they ran into some very strong headwinds in terms of getting buy-in in the United States. Yeah, hype is a good word. In one of your Watson uh, stories, or in a couple, you you quote this doctor uh, who says, this product is a piece of shit. <laughs> one doctor at Jupiter Hospital in Florida told IBM executives, according to documents, we bought it for marketing and with the hopes that you would achieve the vision. And then you see, you know, not just Watson's marketing, but then hospital systems marketing the fact that they now use Watson and they're on the cutting edge. Jupiter Medical Center is the first regional medical center in the country to adopt IBM Watson for oncology. Watson for oncology quickly analyzes patient data against the latest studies and published reports. IBM was mounting a very big and aggressive marketing pitch to say this is going to revolutionize cancer care. And, you know, there were commercials run on television and elsewhere. Uh, And so they wanted to get, you know, kind of flood the zone, rapid buy-in. We want to show people that this is beneficial and we're going to sort of market the heck out of it. And they did that. But then on the hospital side, you want to be seen as a hospital as though you are sort of on that cutting edge. You know, you want to be seen as a system that's really taking advantage of the latest technologies. um, And you want your patients to know that you are are really pushing to advance the use of these tools that can benefit people. So, so the marketing was, was sort of happening on both sides. And what exactly is at stake? I mean, if this was a flop, was anyone hurt along the way or anything? Well, what happened? 
Well, we didn't ever really get any evidence that patients were hurt, but it depends what you mean by hurt. Physically hurt? No. But, you know, are hospitals potentially spending lots of money and time on products that don't really benefit patients? And the answer to that, certainly in some areas or in some parts of the world, was yes. And, you know, that doesn't get cut off on its own unless there's some external force sort of pointing out, this isn't helping anybody, and it's just, in fact, wasting a lot of time and money, and we're doing enough of that in healthcare and really don't need more waste and inefficiency in a system that's already pretty inefficient. <laughs> so this is a while ago. This is when your first big sort of AI and medicine stores, if I have your background correct. Yet, we're talking about this today, and there are many more stories. So what was or wasn't the takeaway from you know, Watson being a flop? Because the fact that it was a flop didn't seem to slow anything. There were so many things that went wrong in the rollout of that particular technology. And I do think that that ended up being a cautionary tale within the industry of, okay, we need to learn from this and not do this in the same way. But the conclusion was not, and I think rightfully so, the conclusion was not, well, AI is useless and doesn't work. I think there was still a desire to make use of the technology, but there was a realization that we're not just going to plug this in and it's going to make the huge difference in the lives of patients or in the financial or business operations of a, of a hospital system. It's got to be done um, more carefully with some guardrails around it. Um, so I think the desire to invest in AI has, has remained, but I th think folks are beginning to be a little bit more careful about uh, making sure there's proper evaluations and, um, like I say, some guardrails around, around the use. One of your more recent stories or a series of stories that I found especially interesting and shocking was about a health data company called Epic that does many things, but one of them is create predictive algorithms. Um, if I have this right, they have about 20 of them, including one for sepsis that is used pretty widely or was used pretty widely. For people who don't know, could you tell me a little bit about First of all, what even is sepsis and why might a predictive algorithm be valuable in this context? So sepsis is a complication of infection and it's the number one killer of hospitalized patients in the United States. I think 270,000 or so patients die of this every year. So it's a major problem for hospitals um, and it's a very tricky condition because if you catch it early uh, and you run the proper tests and then you deliver antibiotics early in the course of sepsis, then it's utterly treatable and the outcomes are much better. But if you don't catch it in time and you wait and you don't see it, um, sepsis can very quickly get out of control and that's why you see so many deaths. So this is an area where hospital systems want a better intelligence as to who is going to become severely septic and who is not? And how do we discriminate between those groups of patients and get care to the people who need it most? So Epic comes along and essentially what they do is they sell, but not exactly sell. I mean, they have this algorithm that they kind of farm out to different hospitals. And one of the things reading your reporting that I didn't you know, fully understand is 
they go to hospitals and they give them sort of cash incentives to take on this algorithm. So can you explain a little bit about just like the company and, you know, how is it that they're making money exactly by giving out this algorithm and giving out incentives for people to take it? Do they take a cut on every, you know, what's sort of the basic economics here? Yeah. So Epic is the biggest manufacturer of electronic health record software in the United States. So hospitals buy their software to manage their patient records, typically over a long-term contract that's worth, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And within that, as part of the incentive, uh, Epic has various machine learning models that will run on your patient data and help inform you about about their care. And Epic has an internal sort of incentive system where if you operationalize a certain number of their models, then you qualify for incentives, financial incentives, cash payments, or a rebate from Epic on the cost of your electronic health record software. So that's sort of how the mechanics of it work. And and that gets more health systems um, who are looking to save money on their long-term contracts you know, they have this built-in incentive to, to, to use Epic's AI tools or machine learning tools. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. That makes a lot of sense. This uh, sepsis algorithm, there was a study in JAMA um, that found in, I think if I have this right, in one case, there was as many as 30 false positives to actual cases. So it was, you know, in, 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 in many cases, it was flagging people that you know, didn't really have sepsis. In other cases, it was not flagging people that that were about to, to get it. I mean, could you explain a little bit more about, did I get that right? I mean, what were the kind of results of this, uh, of this algorithm? Yeah, University of Michigan ran a study on their own patient population. It was a, a sort of a retrospective data set of patients. And so the University of Michigan took the EPIC algorithm and ran it against these patients and said, well, how many of these patients... Um, that actually became septic, did this algorithm correctly flag in advance, uh, and it was a very, very small number. It (laughs) found that it was missing about two-thirds of the cases, that it was sending a very high number of false alarms relative to the patients that it actually caught. And the big takeaway was really that it just failed to help clinicians zero in on the group of patients that would become septic that clinicians did not already see, which is the point of the system. You want this system to be able to find the patients that the doctors would miss. And that was just extraordinarily small. It was often sort of flagging patients that the doctors already knew about late in the game, which really didn't help anybody. And so when that study was published, I and a lot of other people, I think, in following the industry and the use of AI, stood up and took notice. One of the things that you point out in your work, and it's interesting that this study is done by a hospital that uses Epic, right? Their hospital system that uses Epic. So, you know, they they were potentially going against their own financial interest if they were getting these these incentives. And it does kind of set up a strange situation where if you are maybe a cash-strapped hospital system that that enjoys or needs these sort of rebates from Epic, why are you going to ask, you know, really critical questions of the algorithm? It's interesting, all right? And were, were there other hospitals, you know, 
raising alarms or or was it was it just the one no there were other hospital systems but they weren't necessarily raising the alarm and the reason is that when you are a hospital system and you are in a long-term contract with epic for your hospital software it is like a marriage and in fact every time a new client at epic becomes a client they actually play the marriage music. I can't remember the name of the song, but it's the classic <laughs> song that everybody plays at a wedding. Wow. Because they're signifying that this is this is a marriage. It's a long-term relationship. Hold on. So like at a at an event or, or you get an email, like what, what how do you hear the music? No, like within Epic headquarters, like the, oh. the wedding, the wedding march will play when a new client signs on to the software. Because it's like a 20 or 30 year, or at least at the very least a 10 year relationship. And when you sign that deal, you are locked in with a technology vendor and you don't wanna do anything that's gonna create a bunch of friction with this vendor that holds in the palm of its hand all of this data that is critical to your operations. And so even if they would realize it, it's not as though health systems were chomping at the bit to come out and say, this doesn't work. So, you know, again, like like Watson, the same question I have is, what exactly was at stake here? Was anyone harmed by this algorithm when it's false positives? In the case of Epic's sepsis algorithm, I think the problem by and large was that it just wasn't discriminating very accurately between patients that became septic and those that didn't become septic. And in most of the instances when I would talk to hospital systems about it, either on the record or off the record, the description that I got was pretty consistent that most of the time it was telling clinicians something that they already knew like they had already ordered antibiotics for a patient because they suspected sepsis or they had already ordered a lab test. And then the algorithm is sending them a bunch of alerts. Hey, have you considered whether this patient might be septic? So why, you get a little bit into the weeds here. Um, so this algorithm ended up being essentially as good as a coin flip um, on some sort of accuracy scores, uh, whereas they marketed Epic marketed it around a 75, 80% accuracy, the sepsis algorithm, if I have that right. But, you know, you've written about how, how the, the data or so the algorithms will, you know, get worse and worse over time, or they'll work in one context and they may not work in another. What are the limitations of these algorithms and, you know, why might they work? for one population or one hospital or at one time period and then get worse when they're when they're sort of exported into a new context. Yeah, I think the big takeaway there and the realization that a lot of hospitals have had and other users of the technology, you know, is that these are not plug and play. You do not plug in an algorithm and just run it over a number of years and expect that its performance will remain consistent. The biggest problem is and the biggest question is does this algorithm generalize to my population? Will it work on my group of patients? And that really depends on, well, is my group of patients much like the group of patients that was used to train and build the algorithm? And if the answer is no, 
then it's probably not going to work very well. It's not going to be very accurate on your patient population. And the other thing that happens is even if that's the case, even if your population is like the one it was trained on and it works pretty well at the beginning, over a period of years, as things naturally happen and change, your patient population might change. Maybe you've added new hospitals to your system um, and those types of patients change, or even the nature of the illnesses that the patients have changes as they did during, for example, COVID-19. A lot of times you would have a patient with COVID-19 and a different sort of history of, or a different manifestation of illness that could then throw off the calculations of the algorithm. And, and so you'll see that they'll begin to degrade in performance over time. Right. Makes sense. Another kind of data question I have, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of conversation around this area around algorithmic sort of inequalities and algorithmic oppressions and the way that these tools may bias against African-American patients, patients of color in general. How exactly does that happen? Yeah, it can happen in a in a couple of different ways. The main way, I think, in the way that um, folks need to be most aware of and most um, cautious about is if the training population for the algorithm is not representative of the population in, in which it's going to be deployed, then you may have bias, and the bias may cut along racial lines. So if you your algorithm is trained on 300,000 patients from Midwestern hospital systems that are predominantly white, and then you deploy it in a more diverse population, which includes uh, Black and Hispanic patients and other patients of color, then the algorithm, for various reasons, may not generalize, just may not work on those groups of people. And those are the kinds of situations that can arise where you are a baking in bias and historical discrimination into the practices of the hospital system. And that's a very insidious and dangerous phenomenon uh, that can happen very easily, especially if there's not visibility into what's contained uh, in the training data set, which in the case of the Epic sepsis algorithm, at least for their first version of the model, there just wasn't a lot of clarity as to which populations it had been trained on, what were the demographic breakdowns of the training data set by gender, by age, by race. I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you've written a lot of stories about kind of how it's the Wild West uh, in terms of what's verifying the methodologies that these AIs are using. Like, what do we know about its data? What do we know about the size of its data set? I mean... How much transparency is there with something like Epic about how it trained itself? Yeah, I mean, it is, I think it is, transparency is a tremendous problem here. And there just is not a lot of visibility into the data sets that are used for training at all. You don't even know which hospital systems, you know, those algorithms were trained within. Like, if you don't know that, then you certainly don't know what's the makeup of the training population. And the starting point for me of all of this is racism is America's oldest algorithm. I don't think that's even a very controversial statement. Racism has been built into decision-making in so many domains 
throughout the history of this country, of other countries. And if you just run algorithms on data that are, because of that fact, biased, and then perpetuated out forward, all you're going to be doing is baking racist decision-making in perpetuity into a lot of decisions that are made across the economy and in healthcare where it can really be damaging. One of the stories I read of yours that shocked me the most was this one where you covered, I think it's called, as the FDA clears a flood of AI tools, missing data raise troubling questions on safety and fairness. And, you know, basically you just kind of provide an overview of how many algorithms, algorithmic products the FDA has approved by what standard and what, what do we know about them. You know, and one of the things that struck me about this article and, and others that you've written is that there's a different standard than there is a place to a new drug, for instance. And I didn't really understand why. Because, you know, an AI algorithm may not sort of like directly harm a patient, but if it dissuades a doctor from administering a life-saving treatment, then, you know, isn't it the same? So, so why is it that the FDA has taken this kind of lighter touch when approving these algorithms and not even been transparent about it? Because it's, it's you folks at STAT that, is, that, that are compiling a kind of public database of these, of these particular algorithms and what kind of data they've, they've used. And I think the reason for that is that the FDA just didn't have and hasn't had as much experience with this technology, this new sort of iteration of artificial intelligence and machine learning as it has had and built up over the years in drug review. I mean, that, the system of reviewing pharmaceuticals, you know, has been built up over many, many decades and it's been refined to the point where we see it today. And there is a, a pretty high level of transparency into how those products are reviewed and the public can can sort of access those proceedings and sit in and listen and understand the questions that are being asked and the safety profiles of the product and who it was tested on and who it wasn't tested on. And the reason we don't have that in machine learning and artificial intelligence is that there is no built up sort of level of experience and framework for assuring that you know, there is a clear, well-defined process for reviewing these technologies and the kinds of information that people need to know to make sure that they're safe and effective and fair. And so, you know, the FDA is trying to build that while the technology is advancing. And it's, it's a very hard job. The FDA is in a very hard position right now because they have to catch up and they're not great at doing that. They can't hire the machine learning engineers that industry can. They can't pay them the same salaries. It's much harder to do. And so I think that's where you see that those two processes for reviewing diverge in a kind of nonsensical way. I'm wondering what what we should make of this. Should we become kind of technological Luddites who reject AI and medicine is there a kind of easy regulatory fix? Is there a more radical policy change that needs to happen? What, what, what's there, what are some of your kind of big picture takeaways? Yeah, I, I believe that there is a middle path to make productive and effective use of artificial intelligence in healthcare that can certainly improve care and operations. Um, but there needs to be transparency into how they work, into how they were trained. But 
either extreme is not the right approach to just shut down from the technology and say, no, we can't use this. It's not going to help. And we need to run away from it or, or block it. Uh, I don't think is the right approach. And it's likewise not the right approach to say, we don't need regulation. Let's just use it. And I think that latter scenario is the one that played out over the past you know, decade or so, where it was just baked into processes and decision-making in ways that were non-transparent and not carefully thought through. And that's, we have to take a more systematic approach. That was Casey Ross of Stat News. He is their national technology reporter. You can find him on Twitter at Casey M. Ross. When I was preparing for this episode, I knew that I wanted to talk to a philosopher of medicine. I've studied a little bit of philosophy of medicine, and I can tell you it is super interesting. They have these intractable debates about how we even define disease. There are different conceptions of diseases, and they look different in different times, places, and from different schools of medicine. Some things look really easy to quantify, but other things they seem really idiosyncratic, almost undefinable. And so with all that messiness, I was immediately skeptical of AI in medicine. Sure, yes, it's probably useful in many ways, but I was skeptical of the idea that we could totally systematize medicine using these technologies. But I also don't want to get too, too abstract. I do want to stay grounded in clinical practice. So I knew I also needed to talk to a doctor. Lucky for me, I found someone who is both. Someone who is both a doctor and a philosopher. Ben Chin Yi is a hematologist, and he is working on a PhD in the history and philosophy of science at Cambridge University. He looks at the philosophy of technology and especially medical technology. Ben studies how these tools affect clinical decision-making and the patient-doctor relationship. Ben Chin Yi, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. I love the writing that you've been doing about AI medicine and the philosophy of technology and medical technology in general, I think because it addresses not just the obvious concerns, I mean the concerns about the garbage data and the problems with it and the way that AI is sort of mobilized, but like deep foundational problems about what it even means to be measuring disease in this kind of way and if there's potentially some epistemological and ontological problems. So I think our audience will, will be very enlightened, especially if they aren't philosophers, to hear, hear some new sort of critiques. So thanks for taking the time to, to connect with me. No, it's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I've benefited a lot from philosophical colleagues in this space. And as a clinician, these are questions that are really at the heart of my day-to-day -day clinical practice. And so I've really benefited from being able to try to apply some philosophical ideas in this context. And hopefully we can both learn something from the conversation. <laughs> So I wanted to, to talk to you about AI and medicine, and you've written a couple of, of great articles kind of in and around this topic. But maybe by way of introduction, I was curious, you know, before I heard about your point of view, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the sort of prevailing point of view. And you do write about various sort of medical futurists and their biggest and grandest utopian visions of what AI in medicine could do, including perfect individualized risk assessments and things of that nature. 
I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about, you know, give us that full-throated articulation of the utopian view. Probably the most prominent proponent of this is Eric Topol. Am I right? Yeah, certainly. Um, Eric Topol is someone who I would call a medical futurist and a proponent of this view. He's written several books on uh, on this topic. The view that you are articulating, if you'll forgive me for sort of a, a brute caricature, it is this idea that we can straightforwardly apply technology in a medical context in a way that will straightforwardly improve patient care that overlooks a lot of these deeper philosophical challenges that arise both related to medical knowledge, more epistemic challenges, and also ethical challenges related to potentially adverse impacts and harms that might result from these for particular patient groups. Tell me a bit more about what that sort of vision looks like? I mean, are they talking about more or less replacing doctors and their sort of practical clinical judgments and having everything be sort of individualized risk assessments based on big data and personalized medicine? I mean, what is this kind of like minority report for medicine or something? Like, what does it look like? In short, it might look something like that, where we have access to an increasing amount of medical data that is able to provide increasingly precise predictions on particular health outcomes. I'm not sure whether it will go as far as the minority report, but uh, certainly there are some people who take the deterministic view about what algorithms can do. But also some people think that this can, like you alluded to before, have a direct impact on how we make clinical decisions and how we incorporate other evidence or other pieces of data, like, for example, patient preferences and values. So some some colleagues that I've, I've spoken with this, in this area paint a picture of a future where we might be able to have an algorithm that not only takes data about the patient and their particular health condition, but then might take particular data about, about their values or their preferences and then produce an output in terms of what the best course of treatment ought to be for that individual in a way that circumvents all the at least conventional ways of exercising clinical judgment that exists today. And this is kind of the, an extreme view, I should say. It's not the view that, that's, that's commonly held, but it is a view that is out there amongst the staunchest proponents of, of how AI might impact clinical care. To transition here to clinical judgment, I wanted to ask you about someone you wrote about, Alvin Feinstein, who was in some ways seen as a a precursor to the evidence-based medicine movement, I think. But later, he became a kind of critic because of what it reduced or what it failed to appreciate about what the doctor does. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, what is kind of the limitation of evidence-based medicine, which is, you know, a kind of part of the story that we're talking about, or maybe is the kind of parent of the AI story? Feinstein was an interesting figure in the history of clinical judgment and of evidence-based medicine. Someone who played a major role in establishing some of the methods, quantitative methods that really inspired clinical epidemiology and subsequently the evidence-based medicine movement. There's been many criticisms that have been leveraged against evidence-based medicine, including how it prioritizes or privileges particular forms of evidence over others, namely evidence from population-level studies and specifically within their hierarchy of evidence, meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials or in fact randomized controlled trials themselves, and excludes other approaches including experiential evidence, often patient-centered evidence in influencing clinical decision-making. And this is something that both myself and, and Ross Upshur have criticized over the years. And one of the, the worries is that with the advent of some of these algorithmic approaches to clinical decision-making, we're going to see similar privileging of particular quantitative approaches to clinical reasoning. And this is going to overshadow um, some more of the human-centered approaches that we sought to, to emphasize in some of our own writings. 
This is one of those things that maybe people that don't study philosophy or especially the philosophy of medicine, which is sort of even a smaller subfield, wouldn't even sort of think about. I mean, if you're you're told, do you believe in evidence-based medicine? I mean, the kind of average sort of progressive listener will say, of course. I mean, evidence-based medicine is, is a kind of solution to cultural superstition, to racism, to the kind of tyranny of of the doctor and um, his or her supposed wisdom. So it may be be puzzling that there are these sort of critiques of it. So I I wanted to ask you, I guess, just a little bit more about that. I mean, why why isn't evidence-based medicine simply what we should be embracing? Yeah, this is, of course, there's rhetorical power in the label that this movement assumed. And the very name evidence-based medicine makes it something quite difficult to to criticize. Evidence-based treatments give you the best chance for recovery. There are different perspectives on exactly what it takes for a treatment to be considered evidence-based. In general, the scientific community looks at three things the number of research studies, the quality of those studies, and whether experts agree the treatment works. But philosophers and physicians, in fact, have criticized evidence-based medicine, as well as a variety of other scholars. Like you said, if our medicine is not based on evidence, then what should it be based on? And I think that one of the lines of criticism is not necessarily challenging the fact that our clinical decisions ought to be informed by evidence, but challenging what evidence-based medicine actually conceives of as evidence. In fact, it's not about evidence writ large, or it's not about a capacious notion of what constitutes evidence, a plurality of different sources, but in fact is premised on a, a fairly rigid and specific hierarchy of what is considered better evidence than others. And that's really, I think, the problem that myself, as well, long, as, well as many scholars, have sort of taken to be the main problem with this movement. And now there's a wealth of literature looking at various problems arising within the movement that really kind of center on this problem of how we define evidence in medicine. So is your basic contention here that we should have a more sort of pluralistic definition because there's a kind of hubris to to a rigid hierarchy, right? And, and I mean, you quote in one of your papers, I think it was a textbook or something where one of the evidence-based medicine proponents comes to the conclusion, quote, it is hard to escape the implicit conviction that laboratory and technological data are more objective and therefore more scientific than the subjective information gathered by listening to a patient tell his or her story. So it, even the patient's own like experience doesn't count, or at least it doesn't count high enough on that hierarchy. Right, exactly. Yeah, that that's sort of that quote there, I think, reflects the, uh, the bias of a narrowly construed uh, concept of evidence-based medicine. Now, one of the conceptions in clinical judgment would be that we need to start from this evidence and then those quote-unquote subjective factors and patient values can later inform how you use that evidence. But this sort of unidirectional way from evidence to patient values, I think, is is problematic in many ways and doesn't cut to the heart of the problem where actually it should be the other way around. We start from patient problems and then we seek for whatever evidence is going to help us inform the question at hand in clinical practice. So transitioning to AI, which has some of these same sort of features as evidence-based medicine, can we talk a little bit about the sort of deep philosophical problems? You wrote a paper where you essentially identified three different problems 
One was what you described as epistemological ontological, which had to do with kind of values in observation and measurement. So, you know, what's in the data. Some logical problems about what, you know, what can such data even capture or can't it capture. And some phenomenological problems, which are to do with the experience of the patient. I guess this is closest to what we were just discussing. Does, does the AI capture the lived experience and concerns of a particular patient in a particular doctor's office? Why don't we start with the kind of the value-ladenness, which is a term that you know, people in your field are, are very, very familiar with, but may not be something that sort of lay observers of science think about. It's sort of value-ladenness. So what does that mean? Value-ladenness is used in many different ways in my field, but roughly speaking, it touches on this idea that things that might be considered to not be impacted by values, things like a particular scientific theory or a particular, like to go back to our previous discussion, a particular piece of evidence, a particular assertion by a clinician or a scientist might be a value-free statement uh, of fact. And what value-ladenness seeks to articulate is that some of these seemingly value-free aspects of science, of medicine, are in fact shot through often with with value-based decisions. To give one concrete example from healthcare, there was a famous study recently published that looked at a proprietary insurance algorithm that was designed to predict the healthcare needs of a particular set of patients who were enrolled in this program. And this was subsequently revealed to systematically underestimate the healthcare needs of Black individuals who were, were enrolled in this program. And the reason that this was the case was because as a proxy for healthcare need, this algorithm was using healthcare expenditures, historical healthcare expenditure, to predict the healthcare needs of these individuals. And historically, Black individuals received less healthcare expenditure in the system being studied. And so this was an example of how the values of which variables to choose to represent a particular phenomenon, namely healthcare need, impacted, in fact, what was generated as the output of this algorithm. And if implemented, this would entrench systemic inequities. And what is especially problematic is that it would do it under what's sort of called this veneer of technological neutrality, where it's seen as sort of an objective algorithmic output that unless you sort of look under the hood and interrogate the values that were used to define the problem in the first place, you risk overlooking. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this is, I think... You know, people might think of this as bias, and that maybe is one way to talk about it. But it's sort of like deeper than that. The philosophy of science sort of take is that kind of all observation, right, is value-laden. It's just like you have to ask yourself what you are measuring and that in and of itself, and then how you are measuring it is like a really a really profound decision. In your paper, you use, I think was a really kind of nice little encapsulation of this. It was something that Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, asked his students. I think it was something to the effect of observe the room that we're in and write about it. And people were perplexed because what do you mean by that? I mean, which is a great question. Like, what are you to observe and how are you to describe it? And that is chock full of all sorts of different questions. And then in the realm of medicine, I, I would imagine that different sort of medical disciplines or subfields are going to see a particular problem in a different sort of way. They're going to characterize, they're going to define the problem along sort of different 
parameters. And then with AI, I mean, which one is it picking, right? Is it factoring in multiple sorts of perspectives of that data? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the way that we frame the problem is that, that we're trying to ask and answer with AI incorporates uh, values in an important way. I mean, to think about my field of cancer medicine, if the question that we're asking is how do a particular set of genomic biomarkers predict a particular patient outcome? And how do these tell us which treatments should be used? This is a legitimate question that's being asked widely in my field. But if this question is the only question that we're asking, or we're asking it to the exclusion of other questions, we neglect a whole other universe of potential information that might actually be relevant and salient to thinking about how we care for our patients, including questions about what are the environmental or social determinants of health in these patient populations? And so one worry that I have is that this isn't a problem exclusively with AI, I'll say, but, but it is one that the link between inputs and outputs is often made opaque and, and it makes it more challenging to interrogate some of these questions. If, if an algorithm sort of becomes enshrined as a gold standard, then we, we sort of, all the other questions kind of fall to the wayside, so to speak, and we sometimes might, might forget that this is only one representation, this is one model, and it should be applied with recognition that it's one model. One, one way of thinking about this problem. Um, I was at a coffee shop the other day and I was uh, sitting with a friend and we were talking about this episode and we were sitting next to someone who happened to be a developer who's developing an AI technology for something. And, and, and he was nuanced. He had some critiques of the industry, but, but he also was clearly a proponent of it. And um, when he heard what we were talking about, one of the, his reflections was, yeah, that's all true, that our healthcare system has this racist history and and, the, and that sort of colors also the data. But he said to me, like, in theory, the AI could correct for that. You know, there's a technological sort of actuarial fix to historical harms. You sort of adjust for how you quantify the racism that's embedded in whatever data set or whatever measure. You can kind of if, if we're aware of it, and we clearly are because you're talking about it and other people are talking about it, well, can't the designers somehow deal with it? Yeah, so this is uh, this uh, notion of technical fixes to some of these entrenched inequities is one that it makes me quite skeptical. I worry a lot about people who think that this is the primary way that we can go about doing these things. To me, at best, it seems like a proximate band-aid to a, a deeper problem that we're not going to overcome by just implementing these uh, sort of post hoc adjustments. And the worry, the biggest worry that I have about this in the field of AI ethics is that it sort of overlooks the deeper problem that we face with these technologies um, is that because we're training them on historical data, on existing data, which are shot through with racism and inequities, this is not something that's going to go away. This is not something that we can simply just kind of continue to implement corrective measures for. We need to really start thinking long and hard about some of these social and material factors that are actually um, the sources of these inequities. And so I think that this idea that we can just simply implement a technological fix for an already technological solution is, is something that I'm deeply skeptical about. I hear you. One of the other refrains, I think, from the optimists in this area, and I think, you know, this has a certain certain logic to it that, that's appealing, is they'll say, well, you know, perhaps the AI can actually be less racist than the doctor in some way. Like, I think we've all been, I mean, I certainly have been in doctor's offices where it's not racism I was facing, but it was a kind of, you know, like, a crass doctor who wasn't really listening, who didn't really seem to be treating what actually ailed me 
It was not the kind of virtue-based narrative, historical, practical judgment that you write about. So I think there's often hope that however imperfect a data might be, it, it may be better than the kind of average or even below average doctor that many people face and, and especially racialized communities have not great feelings about the medical system. So with the physician, even though um, some of these racist views or biases might be entrenched and not necessarily be immediately apparent, even within our existing system, there's at least a way to interrogate these and to identify those and to situate them in a particular locus and to rectify those potentially. Mm -hmm. When it comes to an AI system that is incorporating some systemic biases and racism in, in the way that they transform inputs into outputs, the worry is that this becomes something that is opaque and hidden yeah. and that it does so under this veneer of, of neutrality, under this notion that, you know, it's not possible for this algorithm, in fact, to be biased or to be racist because this is just a computer algorithm, whereas the individual clinician is an identifiable locus of racism and is someone who can point the finger can be pointed at and who can be subject to blame for that action and, and held accountable for that action. And that's a worry that I have with the AI system is that it, it, it might be doing so in a way that's hidden. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. There's a kind of virtue in... in um identifying the human agency and sort of culpability because um, then we are then we are sort of empowered to change it and I wonder even even for the physicians um, that have that have some of these kind of odious beliefs I mean uh, cultures in medicine change and have changed and like those people also um, are are educate, educable right whereas you know perhaps the, perhaps the AI is not or perhaps it's such a, such a feat to sort of you know recreate the data set or or tweak the um, tweak the underlying me mechanics especially when they are opaque and proprietary um, and we, we just don't know anything about it. Um, which, which is another kind of, uh, I guess, phenomenological worry. I mean, like, how how much does it matter uh, as a as a clinician and, and and as a patient? I guess to be able to say to the patient, um, you know, this is what I recommend because you know here is my reasoning, um, and then on the patient side to sort of hear that reasoning um, versus a system in which. You know, it's a total kind of black box that says, you know, you you feed in the outputs. It's uh, you feed in the inputs rather, and it suggests an output, and and you have no idea as to how it came to that conclusion. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, there's sort of the same conclusions. Does it matter that in the case of the the physician, we have that sort of story of their own reasoning? Yeah, so my personal perspective is that this does matter from my own clinical experience. Part of routine clinical practice, routine medical practice is at least attempting to provide an explanation and attempting to provide a justification or certainly providing a justification for a particular course of clinical action. This, I think, is, is, is a, you've, you've touched on a really important and a really crucial question, whether uh, this is necessarily the case. So as a patient, um, uh, a patient of the future, perhaps, would they opt to rely on an algorithm telling them what treatment to take, telling them what diagnosis they have based on the notion that this algorithm has been reliable in the past, perhaps, but not necessarily having an explanation or a justification for that particular course of treatment. I think right now, as things currently exist, that, that, that seems to me a strange way to practice medicine. And in current medical practice, this is something that's part and parcel of what we do. If I'm 
counseling a patient, recommending that they take a particular cancer treatment, I'm expected as a physician to provide justification for that treatment beyond simply the fact that this is what I'm telling you to do. And one of the worries, yes, with some AI systems is that they might not afford the same level of explanation or justification for particular recommendations that are being provided. There is a focus in this area on trying to develop so-called explainable AI and to sort of find ways that we can look under the hood, so to speak, and understand why a particular output's being generated. But I do think that this is a demand that if I'm a clinician implementing these things in clinical practice, I want to know why, and my patients want to know why. And I think that this is something that that at least in current medical practice, I'm not ready to jettison, and I don't think my patients are either. That was Ben Chin Yi. Ben Chin Yi is a hematologist, and he's also a PhD candidate at Cambridge University in the History and Philosophy of Science. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Chin Yi. I will link that on the show page. That's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. If you like what you heard, continue supporting us. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We are a production of Cited Media, and we are produced by Jay Coburn, Mark Epilonio, and Ren Bangert. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic designs are done by Dakota Coop. I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of an ongoing mini-series that we are producing, which looks at the politics of medicine and emerging medical controversies. The scholarly leads are Professors Maya Goldenberg at the University of Guelph and Maxwell J. Smith at the University of Western Ontario. The research assistant is Yoshi Miyasaka at the University of Guelph. They all provided research support and guidance to this episode. Thanks for listening. Check back in in about two weeks.